Why don't you explain what uh, what you were thinking of, like what's similar between learning how to climb a mountain to learning how to play high stakes MTTs yeah. or being ready I against try. battling Sam Grafton at like the final table. What's up, everybody? Today I've got a bit of a unique guest. Uh, she is making a bit of a splash in the high-stakes poker world, winning since she stepped on to the poker world, made about 1.2, 1.3 million in caches, which isn't that much, but she's new to it, and she's actually, in my opinion, much more accomplished than a lot of the poker players. She's got a lot of accomplishments and deals that I personally envy. Um, even at a young age, she was a national chess champion. I, uh, I think I'm getting that right. And she's won like the, the prestigious math competition uh, in Russia, which is very, very hard to do from Lithuania. And on top of that, she's uh, where she's an accomplished entrepreneur in the tech space, which is very, very hard to do. Created multiple like multi-million-dollar companies. I understand creating grid dynamics and right on track uh, in particular, and uh, also involved in philanthropy as well. Please welcome everyone, Victoria Livshitz. Livshitz? Yeah, Is that how you say it? Very good. Did I get all that right? Because yeah. I know that your your the companies that you made are like legit companies, which you know, as someone who's done a little bit of business, uh, I don't I consider myself quite a fish, um, and I know like quite what goes a little bit of what goes into that. I don't know like the full spectrum of it, but in my opinion, it's harder than winning millions at poker. That's one thing I've done. So there's there is that, <laughs> and uh, and then. Well, it seems like you're now finding your way to succeeding in the poker world. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your story in the first place and fill in some of the gaps that I'm missing so that people can get a better idea of what you've done. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I, yeah, I grew up in Lithuania when it was still part of Soviet Union. I, um, I played a lot of chess when I was young, and then I studied uh, mathematics and computer science. Um, moved to the United States when I was uh, uh, 20, so it's been uh, you know, well over 30 years by now. Um, continued studied mathematics and computer science, uh, started professional career, well funny enough, started my very first business, and I think I'm on a company number 12 uh, at this point in time. So my very first one was a professional chess academy. That was like the first really? business that was established when uh, uh, you know moving to the U.S. and it helped make first money. You know, put 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 us through college. Uh, it was me and my husband at the time. Um, he was big time international master in chess. We met at the chess tournament, so we were kind of a chess chess couple at the time. And we started Chess Academy in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. Is kind of where we where we settled in. Uh, yeah, and it was my first taste of entrepreneurship, I guess. And uh, and it was very helpful to get acclimated to the country, uh, learn the language, and uh, you know make enough money to to get ourselves through school. But then I had a kind of a classic Silicon Valley career or technology career. I actually, didn't start in Silicon Valley. I started in Detroit, working for Ford Labs. 
Um, and I was working on, uh, you know, early generation supercomputers, writing algorithms to try to, uh, you know, move product development of cars into the digital space. Um, I was always interested in new tech. I wrote my very first neural network by hand and trained it to solve some uh, problems of computational geometry that we were dealing with back in um, 1995. <laughs> um, and then the internet started to happen, right? Um, and um, you know, I got very lucky to be in the right place, right time. Java was a programming language that was um, kind of born to really make internet, internet work, if you will, at scale. Um, and Sun Microsystems was a company who created Java. And um, I started working with technology right away. And then Sun hired me to be the first uh, like Java architect and, and basically drive some of the largest first, second generation internet implementations. So this is what I did. I, I joined Sun and I spent 10 years there building some of the biggest uh, internet infrastructures for companies like Ford, GM, Wall Street, you know, first generation online trading systems. Um, just a lot of kind of a big tech of that time. I became principal engineer at Sun, then uh, senior scientist, and uh, I guess my last claim to fame on the technology side, I was part of a fairly small group in Sun Labs that um, uh, building commercialized the very first public cloud. That was back in 2004, 2005. So I kind of became convinced that that's the next big thing in tech, and 2006 I quit Sun and I started my company, Grid Dynamics, and it became probably the first cloud uh, uh, cloud design company. Uh, the anecdote that I tell people is that if I started 30 days later, I probably would have called it uh, uh, cloud dynamics, but the word cloud got coined 30 days later. So we call these things grid, grid technologies, so, so grid dynamics it is. And it became pioneer in, in cloud computing, and uh, you know, many, many years later, in, I think it was 2020, it went public. Um, and at that point in time, I retired from pure tech. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's kind of the mainstream and entrepreneurial part. Um, somewhere towards the, the end of that uh, part of my life, um, I got very burned out in, in tech world. Um, you know, for something like six years, I slept three and a half hours a day, like sustainable. Really? Uh, just three and a half hours, like every day for five and a half years, I think, if I'm, if I'm correct. Uh, I ran global company. I had three kids. Um, we always survived from one crisis to another. I was just burning the candle from, from both ends. Um, and uh, probably not surprising, it, it did take a big toll on the health, you know, physical and mental. I had massive breakdown. Uh, took years to recover from that. Uh, but then at some point in time, I... I discovered mountains, <laughs> and uh, then probably between like 2017 until COVID, which kind of killed that in, in a big way, I just kind of became obsessed with mountains, mountaineering, long-distance backpacking. I would uh, sleep 30 days a year in a tent. I would usually cover thousands of miles every year of uh, hiking in wilderness, uh, you know, climb some mountains, uh, you and I chatted that uh, we both have experience of climbing Kilimanjaro, 
I've climbed some uh, mountains and backpack in Latin America between Peru, Argentina, and Pata you know, various parts of Patagonia, incredibly beautiful part of the world. Probably my favorite is track was seven day in complete wilderness of polar Alaska. Um, haven't, haven't done anything in Europe and Himalayan yet, looking, looking forward to that. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of a big thing. And then when company Grid Dynamics went public, in 2020, I was already long determined to be done with pure tech career. So I retired and moved from Silicon Valley to Montana um, and started outdoor recreation company called uh, Ride on Track. And the big aim of Ride on Track is to kind of revolutionize what happens when people go to the wilderness and kind of live that for some period of time, short or long. Uh, so it's actually attacking the nutrition part of it. Um, kind of rethinking what do people eat when, when they go into the wilderness. So we have a product line of food, which is delicious kind of a restaurant quality, uh, things that are super light and very space efficient, and you could have great meals basically in the backcountry using like a backcountry stove that you would normally have with you. Um, and it's, uh, it's been taking off. It's, it's very exciting to see what happens with that company. Um, but uh, then, uh, during COVID, you know, I couldn't hike, I couldn't backpack, like all of us, life has changed dramatically. And I needed to do something else, and I sort of discovered the world of high-stakes poker, and not in a direct way, I didn't, I didn't play, but I became obsessed with watching final tables of big tournament events, and became my guilty pleasure, I just kind of binge-watched binge every final table I could find in a public domain. Uh, I didn't know what was going on, but it was something very, very fascinating about this for me. And so post-COVID, which was the late 2021, you know, two years now back or something, um, I've decided to try for myself. I, uh, I flew to Vegas, I took like 10 days off, and World Series of Poker was starting. And I thought, I just want to try, see what happens, and I fly to Vegas uh, and I look at the VSOP schedule, and the very first tournament starting next day was the 25K high roller blazer event. And I'm like, well, 25K is, you know, it's money, obviously, but it's like, I don't know anybody here. I have no chance of getting to know any of the poker, poker pros that I got fascinated with. And I thought, if I pay 25K and I get a seat, then like I will meet them over the felt. And uh, I don't know what will happen, but maybe something magical will happen. And something magical did happen. I, uh, I played that event and I got absolutely hooked on poker. Yeah. Uh, again, I know you ended up meeting Lucky Chewy specifically. Uh, well, at some point you did anyway. Uh, yeah, point, I, I got, I, at that first tournament, I met actually Sam Grafton. He, he was at my table. He ended up busting me. Uh, I ended up running into him in a series of next events that I've played. Um, I did play other events. I played 5K, 6 max, 3K, 6 max. I cashed. I actually ended up being, being about 30 grand ahead, you know, in, you know, in the subsequent 10 days. Uh, beginner's luck, or I have no idea how that happened because I did not know what I was doing at the time. Uh, nevertheless, I think common sense sometimes can get you, you know, can get you somewhere in poker <laughs> without a lot of theory. So well, anyways, I kind of met Sam and, and then he became my first coach. So I kind of had a great guy give me, you know, the first set of ropes around, uh, you know, 
how do you think about poker, what is GTO, how do you actually even study poker. That all came from Sam, I'm eternally grateful. Uh, but then, yeah, two months later, I entered my first uh, 10K high roller at the studio, and this is where I met Lucky Chewy, Nick Schulman, uh, Lucky Chewy was at my table, we ended up battling blinds and blinds for several hours, I've done well, I final tabled that event. I think, uh, you know, whenever a new person shows up in the high roller events, the small field events, and people get intrigued, especially when, I don't know, grandma from Montana Lots all of a sudden... <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, there aren't so many people that show up out of nowhere and play. I mean, it does make sense that you're from big tech, and or not really big tech, I guess, but like the tech world and all that stuff, because uh, those kinds of people do tend to find poker and find it interesting, that kind of thing, because there are also, there's yeah. quite a decent amount of, well, at least I think there's quite some crossover at the point where poker becomes analytical and, uh, you know, you have to learn how to apply software and all this shit. Um, well, this is really so, uh, kind of my I mean, big thesis. Anyway. Yeah, huh? it's it's kind of my big thesis is that when I, I mean, obviously the, 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 there is there is something there since I have kind of fallen into in love with poker so much, uh, so quickly that I I have you know some natural abilities in the game, but the uh, I think the part that is so interesting for me personally as I pick up poker, uh, I, I hope to become you know, world-class poker player. Um, and typically, if you look at how people make their ways through poker, I mean, it's a, it's a game of young people. Um, while you can play poker very long, and we could see people like Eric Seidel that's completely crushing it, you know, for, for decades. Nevertheless, typical narrative is, you know, people who get into poker are extremely young, uh, and then they play millions of hands online. They get very fast, very, very quickly. Um, uh, you need a lot of help to sustain the stress of high stakes poker career. You need, uh, uh, obviously, a well, lot of uh, you know other skills. And uh, I think that while all of this is true, there is a lot of transfer learning that happens, and you can come to poker late in life with some skills that have direct applicability to poker. In my case, it's chess, it's mathematics, it's entrepreneurship which is uh, another uh, extremely complex, high-stakes game that makes poker simple by comparison. Um, and I kind of want to see yeah, for myself... I kind of want to see for myself and maybe prove a little bit of a thesis that you, in fact, can you know, learn poker by applying these skills that you can bring to poker from the outside. And that cuts the learning curve dramatically. Um, so far, that thesis seems to be working, but we'll see. Well, I, I want to talk briefly before we get into that. I think it's a great conversation topic. I want to talk. I want to throw a couple hooks out there for the audience um, about like what kind of figures you were, you know, what kind of figures you're looking at for the, um, or just something that like a lot of people that wouldn't really understand the business world would that would be able to get to an idea of like how good how like i mean how um i just think it's it doesn't necessarily mean that much but to show that you really knew what you're doing in the tech space through like the kinds of numbers that you built the your the companies up to i don't think personally that it necessarily i don't know actually but i don't think it means that much if someone built up uh you know, the difference between someone building up 
the company to a billion dollars versus you know a few hundred million or something like that or even a hundred million. I don't think that that necessarily indicates a major difference in skill. Is my personal guess, but like it, to it show, actually, oh, it does. It actually, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, really. The the so so I think there is a few key milestones that the company goes through that require completely different skill sets, if you will, uh, as a as a founder or, or as a leader. Uh, I would say definitely getting to your like like the first big milestone is getting to revenue, like any revenue, because if you have any sort of a sustainable customer base, however small. You already proven that you have a product that somebody is willing to pay money for, and that in and of itself is hard. And lots of companies never never get there. So once you have a customer right. base, and it's not just like a one-off deal that somehow you you, you made one time. But can we start with like of... where you built your company to? <laughs> can we start with that just because? Yeah. So built, great like, dynamics uh, right on today. Yeah, yeah. At the time when we launched, uh, we launched. It's an interesting time. We were the very last pre-COVID Nasdaq IPO. We IPO'd on March 6 of the COVID year. It was Friday. Uh, stock market was already, you know, very volatile. We didn't know if we were going to IPO or not because because of that volatility, we did. And then, like over the weekend, just you know, the sky fell down and the like markets crashed for many, many, many months to come. It's not ideal time to IPO by any means. Uh, but we were very lucky that we did, um, and everything crashed, and our company stock crashed, and then uh, it took us a good year or so to fix it, and then it quickly climbed from whatever eight bucks that it was when we launched to almost 40, um, and then other bad things happened, like war between Russia and Ukraine, like economic collapse and whatnot, so the stock fluctuated a lot. From It fell from 38 back to 8, then to 25, then back and forth, such, such as life. So it's kind of hard for the public company to have a value. Let's just say that, you know, at peak, I think valuation was somewhere around two and a half billion or something like this. Um, oh, really? I think I held oh, some I no funny, right. some funny, somebody told me that this was like a highest valued publicly traded NASDAQ company that was like started solo by a single woman. You know, maybe I have no idea. I don't really track things like that. But I mean, objectively, you know, building a public company is extremely hard, very low likelihood. We also did it in completely contrarian way. We, we raised almost no venture money. Um, I was trying yeah, to, and I was unable it. to raise money in the early days, so we just made company profitable and took it public, being profitable every day of its life. That's just not how you know tech companies are built. So that's a very unusual success story. Pretty legit one. I mean, compared to like just yeah. raising much <laughs> money and like <laughs> like it, that's not, the other way. Sound like a little bit of nonsense to me. Like I don't even understand how these guys raise so much money half the time. Without, like a Honestly, I don't out. either. I don't either. I, I, I'm not very good at putting stories together, getting out, and, and just raising obscene sums of money on, 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 on nothing. Uh, never figured out yeah. this trick. <laughs> I don't know how these guys do it. I mean, I'd be curious how that works. Uh, I mean, definitely I found hard, it's hard to raise money for charity, but that made a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I think a lot of people can understand, like, you know, multiple potentially multiple billions worth of uh, yeah. like what are the valuation even though like that number by itself isn't really i mean i guess it is really meaningful i don't know it's i think it's more meaningful that you made it like just by making the company profitable so it's like now like 
got some like I think that matters a lot more than a lot of these other companies where I mean the one that comes to mind is this uh, company that was all the hype for the longest time and it was the stupidest thing ever uh, what was it called like we live or we work, we work or something we work we work yeah yeah, yeah. I, yeah I read the story of that it sounds so stupid well the the kind of the big business the big VC industry it operates around the concept that you you really want to build massive market share you want to build massive you know monopoly if you can uh but something that just captures huge uh, you know unexplored part of market if you look at something like facebook right it had billion subscribers uh billion users uh before it made one dollar of profit uh and then once you have that kind of a base then you can go start monetizing everything right so uh it's it's a little different way to build an empire like amazon had been non you know has not been profitable yeah. years and years and years and years like tesla has been losing money per car for years and years and years and years uh so there there's there is certain logic in this whole idea of go big or go home and some of the biggest success so stories like... of big tech is that kind. But uh, certainly my personal experience was of different kind. Uh, and I mean, it, it worked out fine. Uh, well, but I also want to find... Cool. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I want to I wanna, like, clarify for the poker audience that, you know, poker is actually like kind of similar... To play poker is kind of similar to having a liquid company where you like make liquid uh, transactions over and over and over which is a much more reliable, much more, I think it's a much safer way of doing things than the method that you're talking about, which is like, you go big and you make this like giant thing that has giant amount of value, and then you don't make a dollar until like finally you start, um, you finally do have value, and then you somehow turn this into money. Seems like I'm far riskier away from what I understand. Um, and uh, I just think it's important to point that out because I didn't like realize that when I was, uh, going from poker to like investing in like private equity or whatever and then realizing yeah. oh shit all these things have no value at all and now i have no exit strategy yeah. for these investments <laughs> that i made and now i'm just screwed yeah. on, on a bunch of these investments and like oh yeah poker was actually kind of nice because just immediately make you get your money back and like no one ever really thinks about that or explains that and you have to like go the the backwards way of realizing that um but uh yeah that's one thing about poker is it's actually if you like you're kind of like starting your own business in poker and it's just a really simple business and just no one ever really thinks of it that way but well i think be... about it this way i definitely think that way about about my own you know path in poker that you know i i kind of set up these goals and i think it's important whatever it is that you pursue entrepreneurship poker you know any any other career to you know ideally have some clarity of mission and purpose what it is that you're trying to achieve, what does success look like, uh, even if it's super audacious and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of epic and wild, you, you are allowed to, to dream big. Um, but then you need to execute, so you, you have to map a really big, big goal or, or a dream to set of, you know, executable, executable baby steps. And the, the trick is kind of merry, you know, surviving day to day to day to day and having stay in power long enough to actually, you know, reach your dream with also not getting bogged down by, you know, minutial survival to such an extent that at some point in time, just give up on a dream and kind of being caught between those two things, being, you know, pragmatism of, you know, making it forward and uh, the idealism of, you know, attempting to reach for the stars. 
that's, uh, that's kind of where magic happens. <laughs> that's definitely, I can relate to that and making lots of mistakes as we know. Um, uh, definitely uh, on my personal route to entrepreneurship. But I would like to hear more about your story, as would everyone else. Uh, I mean, you told me some crazy stories of how you got like massively <laughs> screwed over by your business partners. I, I forget the exact story, but you, it was, I believe it was about grid dynamics, especially, right? You were like involved with the, like a partner and they were kind of incompetent. And then somehow they like screwed you over and like got like the, what was it like the Russian government involved? Like, what was the story again? Well, tell I don't me, know if I story. really want to. I don't know if I really want to tell all the stories, especially on the air. And they were wild. I definitely, maybe I'm magnet for wild, uh, wild shit. I uh, definitely had a an, an an unfair share, or so it seems. Although maybe if somebody is in business long enough, then everybody has wild wild stories like this. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, the gist of that, one of the completely wild stories is that I was building grid dynamics. I had a business partner that I was doing business with. Um, don't think I want to mention names. Uh, anyways, that person was somebody that I looked up, uh, in early, you know, part of my entrepreneurial venture. He, he, he's been experienced. He's been around for a long time. He, was perceived as a successful entrepreneur. I was a couple of years older than me, similar background. Um, and so, uh, you know, he became my mentor. I put him on the board of directors. He had a company of his own. I started using services of his company. Uh, I was growing very fast. Grid Dynamics was first years. We were like doubling every six months. We just hit the market at just the right time. The, the demand for expertise around cloud technologies was just completely insaleable. My, yeah, I was tiny, you know, we were a tiny company and my clients were like Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, we were helping them, eBay, Wall Street, we were helping them build their own cloud infrastructures, which was super cool from like just, you know, technologies doing this stuff I was like kid in a candy store. Um, and we were growing very rapidly. And so uh, then a couple of years later, we were facing the, the first big test, which is the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, if you remember. There was kind of a big global, you know, collapse of Wall Street. And, that was uh, like six years. Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was very dramatic in, in my world. I, my company was three years old, and all of a sudden there was this just nuclear winter on technology spend. Um, and I lost something like 60% of my revenue between December of uh, 2008 and January 2009, like everybody froze all spends on new technology. Companies went belly up, like tech, uh, like, like Wall Street was in shambles. Retailers, big retailers were my clients. They like all froze their, their, their spend. So it was, it was bad. And so, uh, we needed to survive. And then this, this, this friend of mine, mentor of mine, you know, came and said, look, why don't we merge our companies? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll put our intellectual sources together and, and, you know, put our engineering resources together. We'll survive better together. Um, and I thought, well, I'm first time tech entrepreneur. I don't know what I'm doing. These people do. Let's kind of merge and, and, you know, I'll, I'll learn from these guys. Um, and so we ended up merging the company and, um, it ended up being just a you know, in retrospect, giant mistake. I probably didn't do my due diligence, but essentially it was presented to me that their company was much bigger than it really was. 
So I ended up negotiating kind of a very shitty deal uh, on the merger. And after that, I became CEO of the joint company. And we continued to grow very fast. So, uh, you know, Grid Dynamics portion of the business continued to grow very rapidly. Their portion of the business was very quickly collapsing. Uh, and then, as we agreed up front, I was, I was the CEO and of the joint company, but this other guy kind of felt that now he was out of place. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that did not kind of feel good for him, I think, on a personal basis. So then sort of a jealousy and rivalry, I think, was born. And then uh, at some point in time, he became very withdrawn from the business. And uh, uh, we kind of agreed that I'm going to try to find somebody to buy him out. He said, fine. I went out and I found a party who was willing to buy his stake in the business and put in a bunch of money in the company. Um, and so I did this. And, and when this all came together, um, he kind of backed out of the deal. Uh, and then it turns out that they kind of prepared the hostile takeover. Um, and so broke that deal, and, and they spent all of this time kind of preparing to attack the company from inside. And, and I wasn't ready for that at all. So that was all very dramatic and very scary. Uh, yeah, very scary. They're all, they were also very wealthy people. They were from like Russian, uh, their parents were Russian oligarchs. There were two, two partners there. And so they had unlimited money. So they sort of attacked me Scary from shit. U.S. side, just big legal lawsuit, like shareholder lawsuit. You know, this is our company we are taking over. It takes resources. I didn't have resources to fight the, the lawsuit, right? And then we had engineering in Eastern Europe. We had engineering centers in Russia uh, and Ukraine at the time. And they had high-level connections to, you know, Russian, you know, Russian government. And so they attacked from that side to try to annex the, the engineering centers. Um, there were some absolutely wild stories how I was, uh, I was, was able to survive and, uh, you know, kind of break up with them and still have the company, uh, and that's definitely a story for a different time. Uh, we need ample amounts of scotch to, to get over that one. But uh, long story short, we, we were able to survive. I remember you, like, basically end up superseding their company somehow, and then their company goes, oh, yeah, like, for bankrupt. Sure. Yep. As yeah, fire. it was. Yeah, something it, like. It, it was. Uh, we we did all right. We've 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 managed to survive. Yeah, and, right. like and that's how it. That's how it. It often is, right? You you kind of you know you you survive. You survive. You survive. Poker is a lot like that, right? You grind your little 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 stack. You know, one head at a time, one, uh, you know, chip up a little bit, chip up a little bit, maybe, uh, you know, survive, wipe one pay jump at a time, and, and then you, like, double up three times and you take it down. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I mean, presuming you don't, like, <laughs> what's the word? You're, you, you know, you don't lose your tournament life or whatever. Um, I'm, Correct. Uh, it I mean, it does make sense to me that, that there's kind of like this the same principle going on where someone just getting out of whatever it is in your company, like eventually, even if they have all the luck in the world, they'll go bankrupt or whatever. Whereas the opposite's true, but you do need some well, luck to not go bankrupt. We 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 had yeah yeah just just to show how much variance is in business. I I think people like one of the things that poker teaches people is to understand it's just how brutal variance is. And variance is incredibly brutal in life, uh, and it's very brutal in business. 
And uh, you know, we know in poker that you know something that is like four percent or like happens like thirty percent of the time. <laughs> I don't know how that happens, but it does. Uh, but in life and entrepreneurship is like this as well. We had some completely amazing timing stories. Like there was a time, and uh, I think it was two thousand fifteen. Uh, when uh, uh, I was very close to selling the company. So we have an acquirer from England that was interested in, in acquiring us. And it was a you know, good time, good deal. And the leadership, the two owners of the company flew to Silicon Valley. Uh, they flew on the Wednesday and we had a really nice all day meetings. And then on Thursday, we sat down and did the business negotiations. And then we were supposed to meet Friday morning to go and you know literally sign the sign the term sheet, and what does happen Thursday night? Thursday night, the Malaysian airline play and gets got, got you know gone down by, by by Russian forces on the you know on the border with Ukraine, as you remember. So that happens Thursday night, right? And the first kind of a war between Russia and Russia and Ukraine uh, kind of breaks breaks on that night. And so Friday morning, our acquirers, you know, they don't come to the office to finish negotiations. They they head for the airport to go home. Who who wants to buy a company with engineering centers in Ukraine and Russia on that day? So like things like that happen with just amazing frequency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. Seems like as time goes, I mean, I had similar things in poker happen like quite a bit in both like crazy ways and crazy, crazy good ways and crazy bad ways, actually. A bit of both. Uh, yeah, but it makes sense that a lot of weird shit happens in business for sure when you're running a company and you're trying to like scale it up or scale it down or whatever it is. Um, and then. Yeah, yeah if, if you want another, if you want another just wild anecdote, how I was able to, uh, you know, the first step towards reversing this uh, attack that I had against me when this other company was trying to take over my company, they were kind of attacking me in the U.S. side through legal actions and then the Russian side uh, where my engineering centers were through relationship with the government. And uh, I kind of needed, if I didn't neutralize the Russian angle, then, uh, you know, I wouldn't have won the war, uh, you know, in any case. And, uh, and I did not have any of these high-level connections. But, but I, had, I had some, and again, speaking of timing, I kind of figured out that I needed to somehow find my way to, like, Russian leadership in charge of technology that was kind of misled about the situation, but I had zero chances of getting FaceTime with these people. So as luck would have it, this was time when Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California. And Russians yeah. love Schwarzenegger. He had always been like a hero figure. Uh, and so Schwarzenegger was playing a trip to Moscow. And so he went there and all of the like business people of California and entrepreneurs, VCs, whatnot, they all came with them to visit Moscow. Uh, and I had relationships in, uh, with Russian embassy to San Francisco. So I called the ambassador and said, I need to be in this reception in Moscow. He says, no problem, here's your ticket, Victoria. So I got access to essentially Schwarzenegger reception in Moscow, 
you know, bought the ticket, went to Moscow because I wasn't part of the, you know, Schwarzenegger group, if you will, but I got an invitation to this event and I went there and all the Russian, you know, like Russian decision makers were on the other side and I was able to get a glass of wine with them and then start the conversation and, you know, after that I was able to get meetings and after that I was able to tell my part of the story and after that I was able to kind of get them on my side and get them off my back. <laughs> Just wild stories. It's fun. Sounds like the, it sounds like a good beat, classic good beat. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like equivalents in poker. Uh, I mean, the whole like full tilt paying, actually paying back the debt that they lost was probably a really great beat. The DOJ, the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice, managed to make full tilt pay like all the money that it owed to all the players. I don't know if you knew about this, but basically. I know uh, a little bit. I mean, I, I wasn't in the poker universe at the time, but obviously I heard all sorts of stories about about that time. Yeah, so basically, uh, I don't know how much of a miracle this was, but in the first place, it was kind of savage. But Full Tilt was like one of the biggest companies in poker for a long time. It turns out that Full Tilt was run terribly. Uh, I later learned, I keep hearing all these stories about how Ray Bittar was a bad uh, CEO, blah, 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 blah. And like how they just didn't know what the hell they were doing. They're riding like poker boom or whatever. And then, you know, Black Friday hits and the U.S. government just like takes down all the U.S. sites and says, okay, you guys, you yep. have to pay all the players. And sure enough, poker full tilt is for some reason using player funds to fund all their bullshit, which was badly funded. Or, you know, they're using resources badly in all kinds of different ways. And so they can't pay. And somehow... Basically, the party poker decides to buy Full Tilt for some reason, which is one thing, and the U.S. Department of Justice steps in and somehow makes it so that uh, party poker has to pay Full Tilt poker's uh, balances out for all the players, and somehow everyone gets paid. I mean, this is actually a pretty crazy story from my perspective uh, that this happened. I, I've got a number of crazy stories that uh, of good beats. I got some really bad beats too. Um, yeah. I got a I had a hacker like pay back 250k to my account. And I was like the guy who got paid like the most from the hacker. I mean, I got hacked too. So yes, um, by someone. And uh, you know that's a pretty bad beat in the first place. Got hacked for like at least that amount, probably more. Um, so that kind of sucks. And I, then, I had uh, similar stories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have similar stories of like hackers or like cheaters giving you yeah. back a shitload of money? Really? Uh, I was what? able to recall. Well, no, no. I, so I had a case where a large amount of money was, in fact, um, yeah, a similar amount, about a quarter of a million or so. It was pretty ingenious. Like it was my first introduction with with how sophisticated these people were. are. I, I was traveling and... Uh, I had uh, conversations, as I always do, with my financial advisor, and uh, they somehow were able to tap into the conversations, and then they were able to represent themselves as my financial advisor to me and me to my financial advisor. Now, we're good friends. We know each other, and yet none of us spotted at the time that you know it was actually a third party in the middle communicating on each other's behalf. Now, as timing would have it, I was yeah. in Europe at the time, and I was very, very, very sick. I was actually, it was right after I, I, I climbed Kilimanjaro, uh, which is like a 
six day or seven day extremely seven like exhorting exercise right and when i came down i was sick coming in i had like a stomach flu which did not make us any easier uh and when i came down i i i i got more sick than i've ever been in my life and so I, I went to Europe, I had the, like a speaking tour planned, and instead I was just plastered down for the next two weeks. I could barely get up and, and move. And that's when it happened. So I was not my best in terms of perception, obviously, at the time. Um, so bad beat on the timing. But essentially, yeah, I was getting communication from my, from my advisor, and he told me he needed to move some money from one account to another for technical reasons. And I basically said, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. Um, and, you know, sign some paper that he's allowed to do so. And essentially there was hackers that were just moving money from my account to their account. And then, uh, uh, as luck would have it, we kind of spotted that something was off in the communications, uh, right, right at the moment, like right after the money was moved. So we were able to alert the banking system and they were able to like quarantine the amount. So it left our bank account, but it didn't clear yet on the other side and they were able to stop it and then move it back. Okay, well, that's kind of yeah. That's that's a good beat, relatively good beat. <laughs> yeah. It didn't sound like the, yeah. the cheaters actually gave the money back. Which no, they didn't. Fun. They certainly did not. I don't know how you manage cheaters to give your money back, but uh, yeah, we were just able to kind of get them back. Magic, fucking <laughs> magic, yeah. man. I I mean, I do I, wonder I mean, what if these guys ever like do get paid or do get do pay for their crimes or whatever. But one thing I did learn. It's funny. It's like usually con artists actually don't even make any money. They they like they they they, um, they have to be in it for like actually liking to run the con, which is one of my favorite fun facts. Um, you uh, uh, what was I gonna say? Yeah, most for the most part, uh, I would say you reminded me that. You reminded me of like some bad beats that I had. Um, like I had a kind of the opposite thing happen where I was talking to someone else for real that had some money of mine, and then then the hacker like jumped in and then said, "Oh, send some money here," and then uh, the guy sent some money there because we just talked the previous day, and then he did figure out. Oh, the hacker said uh, said again, like, "Oh, send some more money here," and then my guy yeah. realized, "Wait a second. Like something's weird here, and then yeah, they're, they're both they're both sophisticated that. and stupid. So you you just really have to be huh? on the on the. I mean, they're both sophisticated and stupid, and and it takes some skill to learn to like spot the patterns like that and and not be the sucker who who falls for stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, bad beats and so you know, and well, the audience knows. Um, so everyone knows, like now there's AI that can copy someone's voice and yep. if a hacker can it, this is what's coming i mean people are yep. doing this apparently on telegram yep. is like sending voice messages of like people saying hey like send some money here blah 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 i mean i don't think they have and videos video. too the, both 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 are voice and videos are, are are essentially going to be the deep fake right is uh is just impossible to discern well it's probably not impossible there's probably like some things that are super hard to Copying yeah. from when you start throwing in some humor or whatever it is. Yeah, but, but the, yeah, voice, that's what's the, the, the voice and the image is, is, is already like a solved problem, unfortunately. Well, that's too bad. Uh, I would think you know quite a bit about that stuff, especially since you're on the poker tech side. Um, would you like to go into more ways in which 
entrepreneurship has helped you with poker? I mean, I remember I personally saw, uh, as I was seeing you improve, like one thing that you were doing that I thought would end up hindering your progress. But I mean, it wouldn't hinder it in the long run, really, uh, okay. that much because of the way things work. Well, you're doing this, um, it was just this, like, you know, at some level, you start, at least I start personally, seeing, like, you could say meta patterns to how to learn and how to study. So one mm -hmm. thing you were doing was, like, going deep into, like, every single tree to find out, uh, you know, you'd go into, like, this deep, you'd be using the software and you'd go into all, like, a lot of little permutations of how to play, like, a certain hand. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's diminishing returns for studying for that particular hand in that moment. So it makes more sense to, like, get the gist of it and then just kind of move on because there's infinite little, not infinite, but there's, like, a shitload of permutations. That would be a far more effective way, at least in the medium term, to learn. Um, but perhaps it might benefit you in the long term because if you spent enough time, you would uh, be able to go through these hands a little bit faster and realize the patterns a little bit faster. And so you'd still like learn something doing this. Um, an example for the audience would be, you know, it's just like a heads up hand and you're going through like what to do on two, two, seven, you know, and looking through all the turns or whatever, blah, 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 and like a single raised pot where you just raise another guy calls and you know, you're looking, okay, maybe it's just one third bet. Let's just, half bet on the turn all this stuff and then just never get to like three bet pots and just take forever on this two two seven in a single raise pot i mean this is what i'm talking about as an example for the audience uh but i think if you were persistent enough and like really like work through that you would you would get through that and what i'm trying to say is like it doesn't matter that much after a certain point like half pot and like three quarters pot on the turn sure. on, on two two seven are not really gonna make that much difference as long as like Overall, you're putting roughly the same amount of money into the pot, uh, according to like how people respond, and um, you know if they're if you're like trying to create a balanced strategy or like trying to exploit someone or whatever it is, and doing it in a consistent manner. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it certainly does. Uh, I think so. So if you go, I, I think your question was uh, talk about you know how I'm kind of applying the the techniques that have helped me be successful in other places to studying poker, right? That's kind of the... Yeah, the particularly, partic particularly entrepreneurship, because I can see a lot of yeah. crossover between poker and entre entrepreneurship. In fact, the parallel that I just mentioned, because I know that in entrepreneurship, there's a point where, you know, you have not... You can't get all the information, but you have enough information where you just got to make a decision and then oh, go for oh, it. That quality actually is uh, more important, I think. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe frame it in slightly different terms. What, what my career has, has been about is that several times over, I made a dramatic shift from one field to another, and the field was completely unfamiliar to me. You know, I, I, you know, I did go from like pure mathematics to software engineering side of things, and then I went from software engineering side of things to entrepreneurship, which is a, just a completely different, and it might, 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 might as well be like a Martian land, right, for, uh, you know, for the, uh, earthling, if you will. And then I got obsessed with mountains and I all of a sudden wanted to become a competent mountaineer, you know, late, late in life, ha having done nothing of that sort before, which takes athleticism and Why takes not? technical skills. And so I just go, you know, full all, you know, how do you become 
competent super quickly in the field that is completely different from anything that you've done before. Uh, and then the same thing happens with poker. And uh, what I sort of believe in or fall back on and uh, you know, explore deeper in, in my own journey through these uh, periods of time of trying to do completely different things is that number one is I think success is, is a skill. And uh, learning how to be successful in anything prepares you to have some methodologies that uh, bodies well for you to be successful in another field. And if in fact you have proven that you could be successful in this field, and then switch and become successful in this field, uh, then you're more likely to switch again and be successful in that field. And if you've done it three times, chances are really good that you'll do it well in the fourth time. So I think a lot of stuff that I bring with me isn't even entrepreneurship to poker. It's like you develop, you develop skills and frameworks for how do you actually cut through a very complex field starting from nothing and wanting to get here. How do you traverse this complex plane, right? Uh, which is a very like a multivariable type of type of type of thing that you need to complexity that you need to cut through. Uh, so that's uh, that's like one thing uh, that I think is going on here. So in some sense, how do I prepare myself to climb Kilimanjaro? You know, less than a year into the uh, uh, you know that whole journey versus how do you you know how do you get yourself into a high rollers to become you know, competent as quickly as possible? They're not as different, in my opinion. You use some of the same methodologies. Uh, but then, well, of course, um, there is, yeah, go ahead. I can, uh, I, can, I can see some parallels for sure. I can see like the patterns of how you might learn and that kind of thing. But why don't you explain what, uh, what you were thinking of, like what's similar between learning how to climb a mountain to learning how to play high stakes MTTs yeah. or being ready against try. battling Sam Grafton at like the final table. Well, yeah, I mean, you said, I mean, I, I could yeah. try. I, I could say some things that might work, but I'd rather you say that. Yeah, I will try to make sense out of it. Um, so first, so it comes down to some things. Part of it is squarely in a mindset um, realm. Um, you kind of have to be comfortable with doing insane things and thinking that you can you can win. Um, you know, some people just don't have that capacity and you know believe in yourself to such I don't know maybe maddening extent as to even allow yourself to go after things like that. Uh, and then you know you start going down that path and the going gets tough. I mean it is. Uh, you get beat up a lot uh, and. Um, you know, just continue not, continue to persevere, continue to believe in yourself and your lucky star enough to just get up and do this again and again and again. That's kind of required to be successful at the end, uh, no matter what it is so, that you're you're trying to do. That's a fair point. I would uh, I would actually um, relate this to something like faith as being. I mean, this is kind of the way that I looked at it. Is this is being like a prerequisite before like having some intelligence or whatever. Um, because it seems like this was behind anyone being able to do anything is you should have to keep mm -hmm. thinking, okay, I'm going to get better at some point, blah, 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 whatever it is. I mean, yes, you definitely need that mindset in anything as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I, I also think about it as a faith. Yeah, you kind of have a faith in yourself. And that's like a big one. And a lot of times it gets tested over and over again. Like why? What objective, what objective facts do you have? to prove to yourself that you know, what you're doing actually makes any sense. And sometimes there are no facts. You just go by raw faith in yourself and your ability to do so. So that's an interesting meta game that you play with yourself all the time when you're trying to do you know, hard stuff like that. 
Uh, and there are more like techniques on the side of how do you actually manage your mindset. And one of the things that fascinates me in poker, poker presents such an interesting trap for mindset challenges and ways to overcome it. Uh, so I feel like pursuing poker gives me so much uh, techniques and skills of managing my own mindset, much more so than in a much more controllable way than, than in other pursuits that, I, that I've had before. But then the second part of it, it's also kind of mindset, but it's more like maybe methods for attaining success. Part of it is just like work ethics. Like how much do you want it? How much of yourself are you gonna put into this? Now, I, I think I'm born with certain genetic edge. And that genetic edge comes from the fact that I have, I have fairly extreme ADHD, something that you and I have talked about in the past as well. And uh, it's kind of blessing and a curse. You know, the curse sure, part well, comes with, there are, yeah, everything is exactly. So it comes with certain deficiencies in life that is harder. Uh, like my short term memory is almost non-existent and it's hard to live in modern world without, you know, short term memory. Uh, I cannot remember where I put keys, you know, to save my life or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but the opposite of it, people think that, okay, ADHD means you have no attention span. It's actually the opposite. One of the properties of ADHD is what's called hyperfocus, which means you can kind of be singularly focused on one thing for almost unlimited period of time. So, um, you know, if it intrigues me and a lot of things intrigue me, and if I'm like really into something, then I could be on this for 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours. Uh, this is how I, you know, worked for years without sleep. You need actually very little sleep. And that's another thing is that I, I, I generally do very well in very little sleep. So that's, that's like competitive edge. So when you're trying to get through something at the time, this is, this is poker, right? Uh, so, you know, going back to studying, going back to uh, just work ethics of it. Uh, I, you know, I've been in this for two and a half years, a little less than that. I don't think there's been many days where I didn't find at least eight hours to either, you know, study poker, deep dive into poker, uh, you know, do something that is, that is deep and hopefully perceptive with poker. And it adds up. <laughs> and there are plenty of days where it's 12 hours or 18 hours. Um, well, um, I'm thinking to myself, how would people watching this apply it to themselves? Um, that, for that, my personal guess would be to probably try to do one thing, especially before trying to like do one simple thing and just create some wins under the belt so they get more in the habit of developing something along the lines of hyper-focus that you're talking about, because, uh, I mean... You know what I'm talking about. You probably, you probably have, have similar experiences. You know what a hyper-focus is, right? In the state, you basically get in a state of a complete flow, and you kind of stay in this state essentially forever, and it's a, it's a very nice thing to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, the only thing is, like, there's, you know, there's people that are more likely to have this in the first place, so there's that. I mean, I do think those people are more likely to, you know, work hard to win and, and pay those prices. Uh, I think it can be developed, though, as well. I mean, one parallel that I personally would see is, I mean, there's lots of things that I see myself doing that the more that I do, the more I just get better at them and can do them for a longer time. And I just think that just this is the way things work. And so probably when you're trying to focus, like if you want to focus more, you just keep doing the same thing over and over. Like if you want to read, 
And I realized at some point, okay, like if I want to, you know, I have many handheld books that I don't actually read too much. I, re I listen to audiobooks quite a lot, but it just occurs to me, okay, if I'm going to like learn how to read these books, like more, just, you know, like focus and read them more of the time to the point where it's, I, I can barely focus anymore and I'll get better in the, and it's the same thing with like looking at the solvers. Um, so I think that that's uh, something that, yeah, definitely like the way that I looked at the solvers, I could, I could do it more over time if I just like got in there and just try to figure it out. Um, and I presume other people can learn that also. When um, it comes to solver, I, I, I kind of, again, one of the, one of the repeatable techniques of how do you learn uh, technical things. I, I think I tried to use it in poker. There's kind of two modalities in learning. One is you want to see a lot of patterns, you know, very quickly because then you discern meta pattern. But at other times, uh, when I find an interesting hand that gets me fascinated, I will go extremely deep. Because in the example of a single hand, you find ways in which lots of different ideas connect. And so it's like exercise. I think learning is, is training your own neural net. It's, it's exercise in acquiring more, acquiring more connections, if you will and then reinforcing these connections, right? And this is how we get stronger and, and, and better. So part of it is just discovering new ideas. But then the second, the developing enough skill to then connect the ideas in the right way. So some of it is just kind of a rapid fire. I'm in the connection acquisition mode, idea acquisition mode, and then the very deep process of now I'm in an exploration model to mode, right? And so mix and matching these things is I think where the like a path to mastery really lies. But then there is a third dimension, which I think is, you know, more like now tying entrepreneurship directly to poker. And uh, there's a lot to said about this. One of them is just general risk tolerance, right? Uh, you need to be able to be in some sense desensitized to risk. You need to be able to put very logical spin on risk reward in poker, whether it's chips or ICM or whatever you're doing, it's a big spot. You, 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 you can't be fearful of like human part of it. You need to just reason through this logically. I think entrepreneurship definitely teaches you to do that because you play for very large stakes and there is a huge consequences of, of your decisions and you just have to have to reason through this. Uh, but then there is part that is maybe my favorite and that's life reads and just the fact that it's a game with humans and big part of poker is trying to really understand uh, you know, who you're playing with and what are the emotions that are driving people in the hand with you. Um, and um, I, uh, I think naturally have ability to read people um, and I'm working to hone those skills, uh, you know, in poker specifically as we, as, as, as my mastery increases and magic is really marrying the two, the marrying theoretical and, and exploitive part. Uh, so the things that I've definitely honed in over years in business is been able to sense people, uh, you know, reaction, emotions, fears, uh, you know, through very small, uh, like window of, of observable things. Like if you're in the negotiations in the room, you need to know who wants to be there and who doesn't, where is the balance of powers, like who is the top dog, right? Who is like, what are the roles of the people? What do they want? What does a win-win looks like? Uh, and uh, when you're managing lots and lots of people, uh, you need to, you know, various aspects of leadership all come down to be able to read people. 
Um, and then you, 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 you want to inspire them, right, as, as a leader. And different, different things work, uh, work differently for different people. So uh, one, one especially interesting aspect is that a lot of my companies that I ran, I ran, they're remote and everybody is remote. So I run companies essentially through, you know, text. A, a lot of running and communicating happens through text media, through like Discord or Skype or in the early days or Slack or something like this, where you only get to text to people, but you still need to read what's behind. You read emotions, you read warning signs. Um, and I think that helps me a lot. Like oftentimes playing online, I could pick up a lot of reads from people um, just by minute differences in their timing or bed sizing or something. And I think that comes from also just a lot of experience and inferring a lot of information from very little data points, if you will, just spotting differences between baseline behavior versus this particular behavior. Uh, yeah, I could see that. I see that a lot. I actually see that a lot more in like real life and like the way people talk and stuff than in actual poker. Yeah. I can kind of tell when, um, I mean, I, I slowly develop it over time and I can kind of tell when someone's like annoyed or interpreting something yeah. in the wrong way. Like it also is just dealing with like women and stuff like that and the way they communicate it. Like, like slowly over time, I don't think I'm an expert really, but I find that whatever I'm feeling in those moments more retroactively to be a lot more accurate than I think poker can be a little subtle uh, or I don't know. Like I, I, I don't pick up, I've noticed some like psychological patterns as I play poker, but uh, they don't always apply, especially if people are like really committed to playing GTO. And uh, I, I can see there being, uh, especially in like live poker, a bit more like, more of those kinds of things that you're talking about like maybe there's some stuff that i'm not even getting well uh, well i i i think there's a like these, like, i, I think there's a lot of information that gets transferred through energy and i don't understand this entirely yet but uh, you know it's one of the other things that i'm trying to understand through my poker path like um there is uh i think just a like a very very recent example I made a final table uh, just last week or or a week before in one of the one of the ten Ks, um, and uh, we're sitting. I think it was six handed or seven handed, and uh, we're very close to each other. Uh, and so the big stack is directly on my right, and I'm the shortest stack at the table. Big stack is super active, and so opening okay. every hand. Uh, I am looking for opportunity to rejam over right. And uh, we come to the point where I have uh, essentially a really good regenerable hand. And predictably, the stack opens up, it gets to me. Um, you know, objectively, from GTO perspective, it's kind of a no-brainer regem. But we're sitting next to each other, our elbows are almost literally touching. And there is a, something about that particular open that just translated an extreme strength to me. So I fold my regenerable hand. Uh, and, uh, you know, later uh, I reviewed it on the stream, he had a queen suited, right? This was one hand that he had an absolute monster. Uh, and I could completely sense it just by the, you know, by, by the way the chips were moved, uh, because there was such a close proximity. And you could actually, I think you could sense a lot of energy fields of people that, that you're playing with. And, and it's not, 
it's not an accident. There were, there were times where, you know, extremely loose and very technical players would like make RFI and, uh, you know, and I had a skiing and I would, uh, I don't know, just flatten and fold straight on the, on the, on the flop because I thought it just was a very unusual energy field and it turns out that the person had king in his hand. Um, and it happens all the time. So I think there's a, just just enormous amount of energy field information get passed, even at the uh, even by the high rollers in like a very technical GTO type battles. Sure, um, I could see that. Uh, a couple thoughts on that. So my first thought is, if someone is very disciplined, they could still control it if they're constantly watching like the way they do things or whatever. Uh, they could probably still control it, as my personal guess. Uh, secondly, um, I found this, I've noticed this at least with myself and other, other sorts of situations is that people's like, you know, idea of like, what is people's like, uh, I guess you could say energy, uh, whether it be being strong or weak or whatever can depend on things that aren't like purely related to the strength of the hand, such as like the certainty of the bluff, for example, mm -hmm. or the certainty of what are the feeling in the moment. Um, so that can happen sometimes also. So there's probably some variance sure. to it. In addition, um, it can be the uncertainty of a value bet. Uh, that could be a thing as well. So maybe you could say there's like a raise opportunity. I mean, but that being said, you can't, it's really hard to tell if they're going to call or fold, even if they're weak. So I think, uh, this stuff, uh, there's something there. Uh, I just think it's like not super easy to master for reasons such as this on top of like. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it could have something to do with just whatever happened right before these. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and none of it is pre none of it is precise, but it's a game with incomplete information where any information gives you edge. So if you can, sure. you know, layer these things, it just increases your certainty and increases, you know, your age a little bit. And that matters a lot. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's true. I think it's just one of these things that... Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe people are, can be really good at it. I've seen, uh, I've seen some people be kind of reliable with it. I've never seen, to be honest, I've never seen anyone like really, really crush doing this and only this. Or most yeah, I agree. I that, 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 that probably is not, well, I don't know, uh, Helmuth and White Magic or, or something, but, but, but in any uh, case, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> no, no. Anyways, we don't have to go there. Uh, yeah, all I'm saying is that from just like purely pragmatic standpoint, the parts of kind of a poker journey into mastery, a lot of it is theory, a lot of it is mindset, and a lot of it is life reads, and that's like somehow the mix between those three is uh, very fascinating. Say, um, I still, like I've seen like all these like allegedly great live readers play, and maybe it works really well against like certain people. I could see certain people being like really consistent, but like maybe it depends especially on like the consistency of like whether they're strong or weak or whatever. That will depend a lot on how they view things. Well, I imagine you're um, pretty good I'm at this, this, right? Like, yeah, I imagine you you must be pretty good at this. Yes, I'm pretty probably good at being defensive about it because I do some really strange things that most people can't do. Such as I can be really, like we were talking about, I can be really strong when I'm bluffing. I can also just like my own energy kind of a lot <laughs> and like inject noise. And I, I do lots of these things as defense um, that kind of a lot of the stuff up. Uh, and I like, perps, sometimes I like figure out if people 
think this a certain way or whatever it is. Like, tell me some one example that I owned myself in a particular ad. Um, <laughs> I was right, but I like forgot, and then, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think when I if I watch people more. I don't know. I, I don't think a particular sensitive energy, which is something I want to talk about later when it comes to, um, when it comes to, I, I think it's a related topic with getting more women involved in poker actually, but it's just my hunch. I think it better at interpreting what differences in, um, emotional outputs mean and when they exist. I think I'm really good at that, uh, interpreting them. I think is something I'm really good at putting words behind them. Whereas I don't think many people are good at that. So, um, where are we going with this? Yeah. Oh, I want to say, uh, having watched the live readers, I'm really just not that impressed by a lot of these guys, uh, in terms of whatever, actually, Charlie was the one that seemed to be, he seemed to have something going on, but it was a really small sample. And, yeah. It's, uh, you know, you, you want to have big samples for these kinds of things because people absolutely made the right decisions over, like, you know, 10 hands you know, many times, including made the right decision. I've been spooked out of my mind online uh, for, you know, it wasn't, it was just the GTO decisions or whatever someone happened to do. And it's just happened more than in person for some reason but like it was impossible like i don't i would think it's impossible to get too many reads but uh i don't know i've seen some weird shit online where i'm just like what the f i've gotten picked off so many times online i just had no idea how like these people pick me off and I'm like what the f um so just makes me i don't know i think there's something there i just think uh i just think it, it's a it's a fine it's a tough skill to master that's all for sure, for sure, but a very fun yeah. one. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk about um, your endeavor in poker, your uh, your company that you're creating, Octopi Poker. Uh, it seems to have a lot of impressive attributes to it, and I think it's really something worth discussing. Uh, it seems to be a really interesting coaching tool that not just had some technical capabilities, but also teaching in a fun way and was applying community to it. Um, so it was approaching yeah, the yeah. emotional aspect. I'd, I'd love um, to talk about Octopi. Yeah, yeah Octopi, Octopi Poker. So, <laughs> you know how I said I thought I was done with tech and I like moved out of Silicon Valley, I went to Montana, I'm like, I'm leaving civilization behind, I'm, I'm leaving technology world behind. And then, then I discover poker and, and it becomes personal quest. And then, as you mentioned, I, I meet Lucky Chewy, uh, you know, early kind of in my poker journey. And that's a very pivotal relationship because Chewy and the group of their friends, which is Chewy, Nick Schulman, Philip Shing, um, they, they sort of welcome me to poker community uh, in, uh, in an incredible way. And I will forever be grateful. And they kind of, you know, I laughed that they kind of adopted me uh, into their uh, group or a poker family or whatever, which, which on one part obviously accelerated my, my poker journey because now I could, you know, ask them questions like almost 24 by seven. Um, and, uh, Chewie is just an incredible, uh, incredible mentor to have through this journey. 
But, uh, you know, not long into that, it was uh, something like May of 2022, so maybe six months into this. And we were all in Florida for WPT, and Chewy just won 50K. Um, spirits were high, and, uh, you know, after dinner, we just spent all, all night talking about stuff, and, and they were trying to advise me on my poker journey and tell me about tools and tell me about solvers. And by then, I had like six months of experience of trying to like master poker tech. And um, uh, I got nothing but a, a, a version because I thought poker tools were just all terrible, just absolutely terrible. Um, you know, Paya, as powerful as it is as an engine, is, I think, horrendous in terms of having user interface, and especially for people who are just kind of coming into really? the game. It's incredibly unintuitive. Um, it's, uh, really? it's incredibly, yes, it's, it's very cluttered as far as interface goes. It's very difficult to okay. just gr grasp kind of what's going on. And I'm, I'm not a naive user of technology, right? Uh, but uh, it, was, it wasn't even that it wasn't unpenetratable from the complexity standpoint, is that I didn't want to penetrate this because it's just an ugly tech. Uh, and not to like shit on Pi specifically, but uh, it was one of the tools which is like, I don't want to put energy to master it because I think it's badly done product from the user interface standpoint. And then you need to do something like, I don't know, my most hated poker software is probably Poker Tracker 4 because you need to store your hands somewhere and make sense of them. But like this thing is written 30 years ago. And like all of these things are written to, to be desktop applications and run on Windows. Like I haven't owned Windows machine for 25 years. Um, and so it's just one thing leads to another. And I just thought that the genuine state of poker tech was just like terrible. Uh, now, uh, GTO Wizard was a much younger company a year, year and a half ago. Uh, and their product wasn't, you know, as powerful as it is today. And I give a lot of credit to GTO Wizard as I think being like a really first true poker tech company that democratized access to poker tools. Uh, and a lot of progress is really about that, about democratizing something that is otherwise like completely inaccessible. Democratize? Democratize? What do you mean? Yeah, democratize. democratize. Democra I mean, if you think about, like, go before GTO Wizard. If you want to learn and get access to the power of the solvers, the bar was freaking impossible. You had to be, first of all, you had to have a lot of money because you have to pay $1,000 to acquire license. Then you had to pay whatever, three or $500 a month for this dedicated server that is going to run your sims. Like it's expensive. You already needed to be fairly elite to know how to even set up parameters to run the sims. Yeah. So like this thing is, it's not accessible to people at all. And uh, yeah, so GTO Wizard comes along and does what tech companies do. It essentially creates a platform where people who are new to poker can fairly quickly like open a account, pay a little bit of money. It's all online, it's all visual, the subs are simple, right? So it really does in you know, massive terms democratizes access to solver type of technologies for lots and lots of people, which is why they were so successful. Uh, now, I think that that's just scratching the surface, and there is so much more that needs to be done. Uh, but long story short, back a year and a half ago, we have this talk, and I explained to him why this poker tech is so bad, and why this is hindering me, because I want to learn solvers, I want to learn poker, I want to crack code on complexity, and you're I like, want to use... You're going to build your own software. Yeah, I want to <laughs> I use beautiful and insightful tools for doing so, and I can't get them. And by, you know, by morning, we kind of all say, well, f 
right, let's go and build the you know perfect studying platform, uh, you know for poker players. And then Octopi Poker is born. And now, a year and a half later, we are coming to the point where I mean we have beta in the, in, on the market, but over the last next few months, we are going to roll out bits and pieces of the entire vision. And so the basic premise is this. So number one, you need tools that have interfaces designed for human beings. And the human beings in poker world are incredibly diverse. And you have a population of you know, super elite who need to be able to ask solvers very complicated questions and ask very and receive very you know, correct answers. So we absolutely need to want to have tooling for that tiny segment of the market. And there is literally millions of people and tens of millions of people who love poker and want to get better at it and want to understand what the f is going on. So make tooling that helps anybody, you know, who is just day one trying to learn poker to maybe 10 years into poker journey, but now they want to take study a little more seriously. Uh, like attack that huge sector of the market. Uh, something ridiculous, like 8% of adult population of U.S. now plays poker. I mean, this is a consumer product. Really? It needs to be thought mm. as consumer interface. Like anybody, absolutely anybody, should be able to sign up, open account, and start having fun, running drills, uh, you know, solving puzzles, looking at their hands or upload their hands and see what have they done wrong, what they have done right. And then going one level farther and looking, but okay, but what are the general strategies, what are general patterns and whatnot. So the, the big goal is to be able to just straddle absolutely everybody in poker community. And then the next piece of it, and that was a big, big, big aha for me coming into the poker, realizing that while we are playing at the table, it's our adversarial game. But when we are studying, the success of poker really boils down to who are you studying with? Who is your tribe? Are you part of the study group? Do you have mentors? Do you have people to discuss hands with? Study poker is actually collaborative activity. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't have Chewy and Philip and you know, Nick to run hands by. Uh, and a lot of people have no access to community. And in fact, the big divide is whether or not you are part of the tribe or you're not. Uh, and uh, so that was like a huge realization for me. And coming to poker community from the outside, like there is a Twitter thing that's happening and poker community kind of hangs around Twitter, but that's like a water cooler, right? That's for things which is giggles. Uh, and then there are discords, which is where study groups really happen. Uh, but none of these things are really designed for poker players. It just doesn't integrate with poker content in intrinsically. So we said, okay, if we're gonna from scratch design kind of the ideal platform for somebody to um, study, admire, learn, you know, have fun with poker, it needs to be social. Basically, it needs to be a social network uh, built into the platform itself. So big parts of what we do with Octopi, it has to do with how people collaborate, how they follow each other, how they share hands, share sims, comments. Uh, you know, somebody creates cool uh, simulations or drills, and then it can share it with the community, and other people can, you know, jump in, train, try, compare themselves to others, discuss things. So building these kinds of discussion threads, groups, sharing is, is, is a big part that just built into every facet of, of Octopi. And the, and the next big thing is uh, that we are about to launch, hopefully next week or some very, very soon, we call it Poker Forum. 
and the attempt there is really revolutionize how teaching in poker or content creation in poker happens. If you look at how people kind of learn if they want to get better and they want to you know, hire somebody to help them, there's two ways. They can hire a coach, and even that is freaking hard. Like, when I just started, my first goal was like, I'm going to hire myself a poker coach. I have no idea where to go, right? I literally had to like, sure, run yeah. into Sam Grafton, right? Like, get busted by him in 25K to even have a chance to ask him, like, you know, do you know somebody who could teach me? Can you teach me? Uh, you know, most people don't know how to do this. There's no way to find coaches, wet coaches and whatnot. So there has to be no like a... There's also no way to know who's really good and who's not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But tech have long had answers to this. It's called marketplaces. Uh, so forum that we're going to launch, you know, immediately, you know, at the first get go is, is basically a marketplace of poker coaches. So we're going to launch with, I don't know, 10 or 20 poker coaches. Uh, you're going to have some extremely recognized names. You're going to have people who are focusing on more niche markets. Somebody is just teaching women. Somebody is teaching specific, I don't know, mixed games. Somebody is teaching, you know, very advanced topics. And hopefully once we are up and running, if you're a chess coach, oh, chess coach, Jesus Christ, where does this come from? It's interesting. I find this. It's like I haven't played chess for 30 years, but there's some correlation between like chess and poker. And I'm thinking poker and I'm saying chess. My goodness, I don't even know where this stuff sits in my head. Um, anyways, if you're a poker coach, then uh, I think there's absolutely no reason for you not to list your services on the forum. And this is how community kind of finds each other. And over time, through the mechanisms of reviews and ratings and direct user input, just like it is in any exchange like Amazon, right? The system is self-organizing. And, and you can cut through the noise by looking at who is most popular, what kind of reviews they have, can I find people who are like me, who really like this program and whatnot. That's, that's like the first level. The second level that we will work on very shortly and will come out later next year is a part of the forum which is the platform for poker content creators. And what I mean by that is that if you go to Run It Once or you go to Upswing, right, or you go to something like that, which are sort of a leading poker coaching content sites, the poker learning today is extremely passive. You basically pay $1,000, you subscribe to the course, and you sit and you listen to a talking head give you video after video after video. That is not how learning should be happening. As a matter of fact, that's not how learning happens anywhere else. Um, you need active participation. If you're taking the course on whatever, single race pots, and somebody is teaching you how to play, I don't know, big blind versus button net, whatever, 40 big blinds, and they're giving you the talking head and they're showing you solver outputs, it's boring, it's impossible to see through, nothing gets retained. Uh, we're envisioning a much more interactive environment. If you're a coach, who wants to record the course. We're gonna give you basically this immersive sort of a poker creator uh, studio, if you will, where you can point and click and create outline of the course, and then you can still record videos, but then you can drag and drop, you know, pre-flop ranges, post-flop solutions, you know, three clicks and create a drill for this particular space and set up a board. Let's say you want people to, you're giving a lecture on how to play mono boards in single race pots. Well, you can create a drill with 10 or 15 or 30, uh, you know, boards that are mono boards of specific type 
and then you just click button, you attach the drill to your lecture. So now you're a student, you're you know, signing up for this content, and, and it's also a multifaceted experience. Here is somebody talking and showing you solver output. Here is a link, you click on it. You bring the solver right on your desktop. You bring the preflop ranges. You start interacting with them as you're listening. Uh, you know, you come to the end of the chapter and here is the drill and you click the button and now you could practice 20, 30, 50, you know, mono boards that, you know, the coach had put together. You could see your score. You could see how you did versus other people. You know, gamify the hell out of this. And uh, eventually we think it's going to be the way that everybody, honestly, will want to both create content and, and consume content. And, uh, and then we could do really cool things because if we collectively as an industry, have lots and lots of courses that teach people lots of different skills. Now we could do this. You have a part of your, you know, Octopi Studio where you hold your own hands, right? And we have results of your hands, your drills, you know, spots that you look at. We can spot your leaks. And we can actually tell you, in order to close these leaks, these are the three courses or three videos that you could take that teach people specifically how to deal with it. So start connecting the dots more and more, if, uh, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, actually. You're like, um, I'm tempted to see how it works. You're actually solving problems I was thinking to solve, which is fine. I mean, you, you're had a, like, it's impossible to solve all the problems you think to solve. Anyway, <laughs> For sure. like, someone has to do it. Uh, I, I am tempted actually to see how it works, to show how it works, even on like the podcast. We can't really do it right now, I don't think, but that would have been a good idea because not some right of the now, but let's, saying, let's let's like do this in three months. We can come back and we could actually like interactively show how some of this stuff works. Sure. I mean, some of the things you're saying, uh, like it's not that hard to like play with a solver and like create some kind of game, like just from mess around you could just say oh what happens guys if we start node locking you know like the three bets to 100 percent three bet uh all broadway hands or whatever it is and see how the the counter is uh, something like that and ask some questions i mean that would actually no one does that anymore so that one's not really a great one but it would have some interesting effects but uh like sure. you, you could uh, i guess you could make some kind of program to put that into a quiz or like something. Yeah, we're I'm gonna make it free though. We're gonna, work. we're gonna, we're, yeah, you, you, you'll see. Just, just, just wait like a month or two, uh, as we roll out the the trainer. It gives you a great degree of control of like how do you want to instrument your boards? Do you want to practice as like uh, by turn double flush, dr flush draw, highly connected, you know, paired boards or something like that. Uh, and so you could get pretty granular. But again, my mm -hmm. point here is that. As a student, you're actually sort of the unknown unknown is huge. You don't even know what you need to study. You don't know how to set your study program, but there are people who do. So be able to kind of bifurcate it where people who can teach others, they can do so, so much more kind of meaningfully than recording talking heads videos. They can create these drills, right? They can create kind of a learning passes and codify it for others to follow. So just creating an ecosystem where stuff like that is possible is uh, kind of what we are trying to do. Cool. It sounds like there's a lot of resources there that could be really useful. I do think it's, that's one thing I was thinking of myself was like, I was even looking through the runner once content and I was realizing, whoa, like I, if I'm trying to find, you know, I don't, I don't know which, which I don't even know which like things would be good to learn a certain concept looking through. There's so much stuff to go through. Yeah on this forum. I mean, there's like, who knows where to, where to go through. It's like, yep. 
get so deep. So it's really hard to like figure out like, okay, what's actual best content for this kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I came up with this idea of like, okay, well maybe I, it's impossible for me to do this, but what I could do is I could get like students to, to like collectively do this and reward, create a reward system for yeah. the people who provide like something that's good. Like that was what I was thinking of doing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and we will have a big part of it. And we will have a big, we will have a big part of it because the idea again is, is that, that somebody who creates a valuable piece of content, be it drills or simulation, something, they can kind of donate it back to the community. They could put it in a library, in a kind of a marketplace of cool things, and then other people can find it. So just creating this kind of encouraging creator economy, specifically in poker, and, and creating platform for that, so that people can add value in a variety of ways, including altruistic ways. Not everything is about money. You can actually do the analysis of a really sure. cool spot and then put it out there, and other people want to follow you and like get benefit from from it uh yeah there's sure. all kinds of ways in which i think this could emerge and i'm very excited to see like which way the evolution will actually take place and then there is another Not part everything. of maybe maybe i want to mention there is a very cool thing that that i think we've done that is part of octopi studio and and by the way just just to tell everybody octopi octopi poker.ai it's live. We're in free beta. Anybody can go and get free account. We're going to in free beta for a few more weeks. Then we're going to start. Uh, we are always going to be a really cool free tier, which meant to be part of social. Like you could do a lot of cool stuff and forever be free, free, free member and already have access to a lot of different tools. And then there will be, uh, I think, very compelling price points for, for more premier product. But um, Anyways, I hope people will start just playing with this stuff. Um, there's two more things that I want to mention. One is uh, one is something called Poker Base, uh, which, at least in some uh, parts of the community I know, maybe has more buzz about Octopi, you know, in that context than, than other things that we're doing. And essentially, what we aspire to do is, I mean, learning poker boils down to a lot of things. Like solver is a very abstract thing. You give it, you give it a spot, and it gives you very abstract. Uh, uh, answer. Another way to learn poker is looking at very real spots, right, and what people are doing there. And nothing is more intriguing, at least I think so, is like final tables of the biggest events played by, you know, the best players. And so we, we, you know, the poker base term comes from, you know, in, in chess world, there is a thing called chess base. And the modern chess is impossible without chess base. And chess base is basically a database of every known chess hand or chess game ever played. Uh, and it's such an integral part of how you know, chess community operates. Uh, poker base is essentially attempting to create a database of every known publicly played hand. So it has hands from publicly streamed final tables. And we are in the early process of that. We've, we are now uh, digitizing, if, if you will, the Poker Go uh, content. And we have a license deal mm -hmm. with them. So every hand that's been played on uh, any of the Poker Go public streams tournaments um, is either in the database or will be there soon. Uh, we'll get all the historic WSIP final tables in that database. And we are working with other uh, stream providers to hopefully get deals in place where we could get all the hands from, from those things. Uh, we wrote AI technology that can watch the stream and generate hand histories from it. 
So we can basically digitize all the archives of the streams that's been played publicly, at least in principle. Pretty crazy. Um, okay, cool. And uh, and it's a, it's a very very cool thing. So you could you could find the hands. You could so you could you could find confrontations. You could like search and see. Show me all hands that Nick Petrangelo played against uh, I don't know Federer Holes, for example, or or uh, you know Stevie Chadwick. And oh, there was like 57 hands of which like. This guy won so much, this guy won so much. We keep track of like ICM dollar value too. So you could say like, what's what's the biggest pot in ICM value that anybody have ever won, uh, at least as far as database goes. And, and over time, we hope to put a lot of like fun statistics talking about like gamifying everything. Uh, you know, we call them sports statistics. Like in any other sport, if you see like, you know, Kerry shooting a three-pointer, you immediately, the broadcasters can tell you, you know, how many times he had shot and, and what's his record versus other, you know, the best shooters. We don't mm -hmm. have anything like that in poker, but poker base gives us premise to have data sets and analytics that we could actually say who, you know, it, it, it's just a very fun way to kind of gamify watching and understanding and following your, you know, the, the, the fan base of the of the great players. So that's that's another cool piece. And and then the final, I also want to mention something. So octopi poker, you know, our mascots are octopies, octopuses, right? So uh, it's a really cool creature. We think that it embodies, you know, a lot of like poker stuff in a very cute way. And we have specifically two octopi that are mascots. They're George and Tom. Um, and, uh, you know, George is the octopus that is kind of our symbol. And so we have this service called Ask George. And so what George is, is that it's, it's really a, uh, a bot that sits on top of ChatGPT type of infrastructure that we increasingly teach more and more about poker. And you could come, and it's free right now, it's not even behind the paywall, you don't even need the, 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 the paid account, you could just go to octopipoker.ai and click on Ask George. And then you can ask George poker questions. And you will often get pretty surprisingly good answers. It will ask you, are you an expert or are you a novice because it needs to adapt. And then today it can give you, you know, if you're a beginning player and just, you just want to know like what's up, you can ask George a lot of questions and get some pretty good answers. But our view down line, we're teaching George other things. We're teaching George to interpret and understand solver outputs. We think that we should be able to get to the point where you can give George your hand history and it can do a pretty good job analyzing it. And, uh, and then later down the line, we hope to train it on meta patterns. So you can not only ask it, well, here is a spot, what should I do? And it can just look up solver output and tell you, but you can ask it why, right? We're, we're, we're always saying like, by the time we could ask George, why do I check raise my third pair so often and get the meaningful answer, we'll kind of have created a whole other interface, uh, much more human, if you will, into the world of machine and solvers. So that's like another direction okay. that we are pursuing. Okay, it sounds like there's a lot of novel stuff there that's definitely needed. I mean, I could, uh, I would have probably predicted, I mean, one of the things, Actually, two of the things you mentioned were things that I personally thought would be good assets to the poker world, like the whole like public, the whole way of, uh, I mean, the thing you mentioned the, the, with the parallel chess of uh, of making the, you know, the biggest final table hands level, like a lot more organized and visible, like that seemed perfect. And putting a human element to the whole solver thing, so that's a bit more, uh, yeah, a bit more fun and 
uh, not so cold and technicals. Yeah, it's very much needed. You know, related to all this, um, I mean, this is this seems like some novel stuff, really. Like, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this works out. Well, I hope so. And... I hope so. We're definitely not trying to replicate like yet another Paya in, well, uh, you know, looking thing in in another package. We really are trying to rethink like really... what does it really means to bring poker community together, and what does it mean to like apply latest greatest breakthroughs in technology to make this whole collective poker journey of us as a community just more fulfilling, more fun, and ultimately grow the game. Yeah, well, I'm on board with all that. I mean, there's a bit of an elephant in the room, or an octopus? No, more of an elephant in this case. That's <laughs> kind of nagging at me, and it's a it's a topic that you um, it's really related to one of your focuses. Uh, it's you know this this concept of like uh, like how are we going to get better at poker and like get better through technical skill and all that is kind of oops is kind of beaten to death. It, like I've seen some really powerful tools coming out. I mean, you're working on those yourself and like you know that's your focus and whatever uh you're the you're working on the octopi poker octopi poker um in my head i'm thinking okay well like where's this money going to come from from these people and this is where this idea of like okay how do we actually you know find a way to um focus on getting more people into the game or getting more money into the game somehow because if it's like the competition's really stiff, you know, the, the mm -hmm. margins get smaller and smaller. And I'm wondering well, what's going to happen all this. This is going to be a bigger discussion. Uh, but I do want to talk about how it, this a particular focus uh, that you have to do with, with uh, bringing women into the game because this is yeah. part of the bigger discussion is like, you know, it's 90, what, like 7% men or 99% men or something like ignored. It's ridiculous. It. It's ridiculous. Well, um, I have some thoughts on this, but I don't 100% understand what is actually going on at the ground level. I do see some insight because I know some girls that do play. And uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because you know, like a lot of girls that play uh, with your involvement with Poker Queen. And uh, wasn't there something else that you were involved Pocket in? Pocket Queens. That's Pocket Queens. Pocket yeah, Queens. We... Excuse me. Yes. Okay. No so problem. what are your thoughts on this subject? I have one major thought. But yeah. that looks to be an insight into the psychology of how people work. And uh, I think it's really relevant to why women don't necessarily play. Although I'm not 100% sure. I think it'll be a bit of a major shift in order to fix uh, for a handful of reasons. But uh, I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of a backstory on actually Pocket Queens. Another wild thing that happens somehow serendipitously as part of this my you know fairly wild uh, you know adventure in, in 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 poker so rewind about a year and a half ago i am six months into poker it's uh uh world series of poker 2022 and before that event i get a message from uh, you know some women who say you know, there's a ladies' event, like 1K ladies' event that always happens as a World Series. And to put $1,000, and we'll talk more about this because I think there are very clear economic, uh, economic barriers for more women coming to poker. Uh, give me one second. I'll, I'll talk, but I'll also charge my laptop. Um, so okay. uh, $1,000 is a lot of money for some people to pay. And 
lots more people would have played these events if they didn't have to pay $1,000. Duh. That's how poker works. So anyways, it was an initiative to donate some money to, you know, put some, some women into the, uh, into, the, into the events, turn it into a free roll. I said, sure. So I donated a little bit of money myself. I actually think there was a maybe a free lore tournament that was organized to place these seats. I don't remember exactly. Anyways, that was like first step. Second, uh, there was kind of a follow-on initiative. People who want these seats, let's give them some coaching. Would you donate some time? And I said, absolutely, I would. And so I was assigned three million to uh, go and uh, uh, kind of just give a, give a coaching lecture before the event. So I did this. And after the event, one of them, uh, Rachel, uh, that ended up my, two of us sort of co-founded this thing. After the event, she reached out and then said, look, me and my five friends, like we love poker. Uh, I mean, everybody is like, you know, middle-aged, you know, plus women living around the lay. Uh, you know, definitely not a professional poker player. We just kind of love poker, right? We want to study poker and we want to get better. Can you help us? And, you know, I clearly don't have enough stuff going on in my life. So I said, yeah, sure, sounds good. Let's, let's do this. So we formed a, a study group and, like, I set up Discord server. I started giving weekly lectures. We started to do hand history analysis. I, I'm part of your uh, study group and Discord jungle. Ours is not dissimilar at all. They're kind of interesting. It's interesting for me to see because our study groups are progressing, you know, in space and time. And it's interesting to see how you run yours versus how we run ours. But anyways, we, we create this study group and it's completely virtual, obviously. And then uh, they come and say, well, can my friend join? Can my friend join? Can my friend join? And you say, well, sure. I, you know, I'm going to run it so in a way that it scales. And eventually we call it Pocket Queens create a website called pocketqueens.poker. And, uh, you know, this thing just blows up. And now we have, I don't know, I, keep tra I can't keep track, 400 or 500 members. And it's just growing every day. And it's just this network global by now of women that are in poker that are united by one theme. They just want to study and get better. It's, it's a classic study group. So we do a lot of things that are related to actually study. There's literally a daily study group that gets together to just, you know, together study various aspects of poker. Uh, then we have uh, the lecture series where me and my friends, and maybe, by the way, I can tab you if, if you're willing to donate an hour of your time, um, you know, every sure. Wednesday I'm around little, the... I'm a little people curious. People come and give, the, us, give us lectures. So, and those uh, are remarkable. I could, yeah. I could give a lecture potentially. I'm a little curious what these study groups look like because you know what I'm thinking in my mind? is like, I don't know. It just feels like uh, when I'm playing, I didn't, I personally didn't study nearly as much as other people also did. And I'm just thinking, you know, people are working pretty hard. Uh, but People uh, are working very I, I hard and they want to get better. And so there's uh, obviously with a group that big, different people study differently, but we, you know, we study various aspects of the game. There is a, there is a mental game aspect to it. We have stuff dedicated to mindset. We have a channel called Hot Mass where we could just, I don't know, just share anecdotes, cry on each other's shoulders, tell terrible stories and experiences people have at the tables. And, uh, you know, and, and that's obviously, unfortunately, a big, big part of why uh, uh, not the entire story, but part of the story. It's, it's incredibly misogynistic the way poker community yeah. actually operates right now. But anyhow, there is all that. Really? Then, uh, so well, quickly. Uh, it is an issue, and we can dive into it, but I want to give you some other tenants that are so critical. So, 
friendship are born very fast. And it's kind of fascinating to see how quickly in this very virtual community, uh, punctuated by live events where people get to see each other, you know, deep, deep friendships are developed. So the next thing people do is they start pooling their economic resources. So what is happening right now is around every major festival, uh, people are putting money together, renting, you know, grind houses essentially, right? Go, going together and uh, and saving on, uh, you know, housing costs, travel costs, and things like that. Uh, the, you know, the the next one is we just launched the coaching program where or mentoring program where people who want to have a mentor can apply, and then people who want to provide membership apply as well, and we mass match them. And then a lot of people are acting in both roles. They want to get mentored by somebody, but they also want to become you know, mentors to somebody else. Uh, Pocket Queens is run 100% as a volunteer organization. There's no money involved, and hopefully it will never be involved. Everything is 100% volunteer. But it's also maybe one of the best-run organizations I've ever seen. I mean, it's run better than most of the companies I've ever come across. Because our members are all incredibly competent professionals in other fields. So we have people who have professional marketeers and financial and lawyers and, and you know, whatever. So okay. leaders of organizations. So it's okay. really, really incredibly cool community. Okay, yeah. I'm a little curious and it's run that well. I'm curious how it's run that well because I'm definitely not like an expert in running uh, corporations, although I like have people that, that are that kind of assign roles to for that and I kind of like getting in there and figuring out. So I'm definitely curious about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm curious to learn. I am. Um, so what is it that you think would get more women in? It does make sense to me that a group like this would blow up because perhaps all these women feel quite isolated and they're like, shit. Well, exactly. Now just, you know, can, that is it. It's that's precisely it. Well, the, the biggest power of this thing is the power of really, you know, I can't find it any other way is to say you find your tribe. Like magical things happen when you find your tribe. It's very hard to find your tribe. Uh, you know, on a personal journey, I could say that everything that, that's probably why poker is so meaningful to me, is that I've tried all these different things, right? I've been in chess, and I've been in science, and I've been in tech, and I've been in mountaineering. I actually never found that, that like, on a personal level, I found people in those industries to be my tribe. Somehow I come to poker, and all of a sudden, you know, people such as yourself, and I just feel like I'm part of the tribe that is my tribe. That's definitely a personal magic and kind of a, you know, late, late gift, on, gift in life. Uh, and this is why I'm so excited about, about it. I, I take so much more out of it personally than other things that I've done in my life. And I think that's how people feel when they find their tribe, when they, f when they join the right, right, uh, right group, if you will. Uh, so yeah, it's super, super important. Okay, cool. Sorry, I I have actually been uh, I have actually been studying like how movements and how communities form a little bit. I'm interested in building communities. So I just, just don't know what the hell I'm doing is the only thing. Well, I'm learning on the way. I, I mean, I found people who are experts in this. It's like it's not something that is like it's kind of a novel thing, but this seems to be the future as far as also positive impact is concerned. But like, you know, poker's like I think Pocket Pocket Queens is a really interesting study because it's completely organic and it's kind of blowing up and I think it's a, it has a potential of just blowing sure. up, you know, many more or of magnitude. Now, you know, you kind of started there and we didn't explore it, uh, you know, fully, but basically 
part of you know complexity of making like big social changes viable for a long time is how do you scale them because you need to change the method of scaling dramatically every time you add a zero so like when you're trying to make something work sure. for 10 yeah. people and for 100 people and then 1,000 people and then 10,000, 100,000 yeah. or a million or then yeah, a billion, like it takes size. a completely different uh, governance structure well, and the skill set and whatnot. So, I mean, I don't know how far down that rabbit hole to get. I would just think that optimizing for size isn't really the right way to go. That's my personal feeling um, based off of like what I've learned is just that size and magnitude of things tends to be a bit of a trap, you know. You need uh, to, you the, at... the, the, the short answer, you don't want to cap your growth. I think that's the wrong way, but you need to refactor your governance structure with every zero you want to add. And some of it is uh, a little yeah, reactive, but... and some of it is very proactive. Like if you want to add another 10, 10, 10x, you have to go and change the way you operate every time you add a zero. Looks like, looks like my area is like running out. A little change in the lights going on. So we're yeah, gonna have a to simple wrap metaphor. A simple metaphor for this that, that I don't know, it, I mean, all metaphors break, but it's like, let's, let's say you go fishing, right? It's one thing, like, like what kind of net you bring with, with you if you want to catch lots and lots and lots of crawfish versus if you want to catch, I don't know, tuna uh, versus what you want to do if you're like catching, I don't know, killer whales. Like, like the net, the structure of the net is just completely different depending on, you know, oh, how many things yeah. and how, how, how big of a size. So it's the same thing in business. Sometimes we, we say, okay, are you hunting rabbits or elephants? You hunt rabbits and elephants like completely different way. And same thing, like, do you want to build a lot of little communities? Uh, or do you want to build like one flat, well, but like a giant community or whatever? Just very different methods. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Um, one thing I want to say is, um, I mean, this is what gets into the topic of branding and like marketing and all this stuff too. And like, this is where like information just goes... Poosh. Let's just uh, <laughs> let's wrap things up with like this whole concept of like what is it that would bring women to the poker uh, world? Like what is it that's missing? What is it that there needs to be more of? What it needs to be removed? Blah blah blah. What are those things? Okay. What do cool. you think? So I'll start by saying I don't know, and nobody really does. It's a really hard problem to even put your finger on. And I would say one of the uh, things that need, need to happen, and this is important, we actually need to put some resources towards finding the answers. And for um, that, you need okay. data. We don't have data that we can analyze. So I would say that one of the things that need to happen, we actually need to put effort to create industry-wide surveys and start capturing data. One of the things that I would want to see is some collaboration with tour operators where we actually start getting the database, reliable database, global for different events, for different buy-in levels, for different structures. What is the women participation? Because it, it varies wildly. And we need to start by knowing, in order to control and grow anything, you have to operate with data. We have none. Uh, tour operators does not report sex at all. So you actually do not know percentage of women that play. Like that's the first thing that needs to get fixed. 
And we need to start getting data year over year, where is the reality of women participation? And after that, you could do a lot of surveys to try to point out and survey men, survey women, and start getting a sense for what are the barriers. And you could apply a lot of marketing existing methodology, it's just somebody has to pay for it, and it has to be done professionally. And then we will start actually getting some answers that none of us really knows beyond anecdotes, if that makes sense. I'm a, I'm legit curious how this is going to work. Uh, it's funny because you, it's it's like we got to get even nerdier to figure out. We got to get nerdy. Uh, I mean, hard problems require <laughs> you know require nerds. I mean, that's how it speaks nerds. everywhere. And we need, but I mean, we have the nerds. That's not a problem. It's more like resolve funding. I'm it has nerds. to be run professionally, right? I mean, it, it, it's all solvable. We yeah. just have to somebody has to care enough to start organizing you know resources around that. Uh, so, 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 so that's one. Anecdotally, it's clear that there are some things that are, that are badly broken. And number one thing is, I don't know if it's number one thing. One of the facets is that I have, let me just say this, I have seen industries change from being hugely male dominant and very misogynistic to much less so. You know, talking about Detroit in '90s, which is where I, you know, came up professionally. Really? I mean, I was okay. often the only woman in a room, right? Oftentimes, 50 people, I would be the only woman, you know, half the age of everybody else, and all the people in powerful positions were men. All the real decisions, you know, where decisions are made in Detroit on a golf course. People go play golf. It's extremely closed uh, environment. If you're not invited to go play golf with them, you will never be exposed to even opportunity to participate in the decision making. There is all these power lines that are not official in any way, but these are all boys clubs, which will never invite a woman to go play poker. Uh, poker, she says, to play, you know, to play uh, golf with them. And if you're not playing golf, you'll never be part of the, you know, park club. And that's not something that is understood at all. So whenever you have an environment that has a dominant, uh, you know, there's a majority and there is all kinds of social interactions of the majority and then the minority people trying to come in through and break the ceiling, they're never invited. They're not part of the conversation. Uh, and every time you see somebody who has been successful breaking glass ceiling, that's because something happened in the life of this person. You start seeing he had a powerful mentor. And that mentor actually, you know, broke the back doors and brought these people in the room where normally they wouldn't have even a chance to develop their leadership skills and be taken seriously. Uh, so, you know, I've seen Detroit have come down and become a place where women run General Motors, Lucky Martin. Was it possible three years ago to imagine that Lucky Martin will be run by a woman, right? Or General Motors, like impossible. There was no universe in which this was, you know, ever gonna happen, well, it did happen. And we see, you know, VC world extremely, you know, male dominated. And, and as a women tech entrepreneur getting funded by good old boys of Silicon Valley, that's another, you know, level of complexity they have to deal with, which just reduces your chances. Is it completely impossible? No. Is it easier today? Way easier than, let's say, 20 years ago when I started. But these are all layers that make it harder and harder and harder. The, the, the playing field is completely unleveled. And then on the... On a, like an everyday situation, I mean, let's, let's be real. How does somebody get in poker? You go to your local poker room, you sit there at the midnight, right? You grind low, you know, low stake cash. So who is sitting at the table? Drunk men. 
and they get drunker and drunker as the night progresses. And they behave horribly towards masseuses and women dealers and women at the table, right? And it's just environment where women need to have extremely thick skin to even want to subject themselves to be a part of it, right? And that's I just got, like a... I, got a, I, I had an anecdotal kind of a similar sort of situation of just like the environment is just not very uh, welcoming, you might say, where there's just all these dudes doing things that are just really off-putting to... Oh, absolutely. Uh, and let's just, let's just be clear. Men right are mind. generally very disrespectful of, you know, women's ability in poker. And this rule just creates layers and layers and layers of, of obstacles. And then we get to economic opportunity. And again, if you think about it, here is a middle-aged family, right? And poker takes money. And here is a, you know, a regular Thursday night. Who is more likely to be able to, after work, head into the local poker room and spend the night playing, you know, one, two, or two, five? Is it the husband where wife stays home and, you know, feeds the kids and buzz them between soccer practices? Right, and waits for husband to, you know, he comes home when he comes home. Or now reverse this, right? Now, now a woman came back from day of work and said, you know, hon, I'm heading to play some poker tonight. So, you know, you feed the kids, you know, you take them to soccer practice, you put them to bed, and yeah, I'm taking, you know, two grand with me, five, you know, four buy-ins just in case. Like, have fun and I will have mine. Like, this is just completely asymmetrical situations in modern society. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being the case. I uh, don't know if what the situation with the, that is, especially with... That one I can't comment on. Um, I, I do know that it sounds really likely that the men isn't really a deal for women. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me also just because, like, I mean, I've been in a lot of poker tables where, like, I could just not really imagine, you know, women going and thinking, oh, this is really where I'm going to be, all these these angry dudes uh, getting mad. Well, at, a lot uh, of a lot of women, a lot of a lot of women do. A lot of women do, and then then they they take this case. Let's just say it's whatever seventeen year old, you know, teenager that is playing online, is obsessed with poker, you know, want to become a pro. It's weird enough if you're a guy and your family is probably like whatever you're withdraw, but you say whatever, fine, and then you know you quit school and you move to poker and you find grindhouse with you know, similar, whatever, 18-year-old, and you, like, cut your teeth together by, you know, bunk bedding together eight people in a house or something. I heard a ton of stories like that. Now imagine you're a woman. Imagine you're a girl. You're a 17. You want to do the same thing. I mean, the social stigma around this is not the same. It's not even 10x harder than this. And, and, and your family is going to give you even bigger crap. And then you actually don't have an option to go to Vegas and, you know, find, you know, another 10 girls that you can move in in a bunk bed and, and you know, grind poker together. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And you're not going to be accepted to the boys club either. So how do you break through? Good question. Uh, I mean, I, I was just talking to Nikita. Nikita said she did go to, like, I mean, she, she went to something in Barcelona where, like, it's her and a bunch of guys, but, like, I mean, I would think... Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, I got lucky because I got picked up by, you know, all men, you know, study group that somehow opened the doors for me, but I had stuff to trade, right? I'm twice their age, and I can trade my business skills for their poker skills, and it kind of works for everybody, but that's a one-off. That's but But if I didn't have... The study group that would let me in, I mean, I would have no chance in poker either. 
at least not nearly on the same curve. Yeah, I could see that being a bit of an issue. It'd be really interesting to get some data on this. So let's... Um, yes, yes. We, we, this has been a, a long one. Uh, let's wrap this up with, this, with the notion of get some more data and like figure out what's actually going on. Uh, that would be nice to... I mean, it opens the door to like, I think a, a problem is kind of creeping... It's it's been creeping for a while, but you know there's been more and more people and like markets have opened up or whatever. But the problem of like getting more money in and more people in uh, in the poker world. Look, if we could if whatever, we could increase if we could increase women participation from under four percent to thirty, we will expand the game. Like there is no other way to expand the game by thirty percent. Uh, I'm you know, all for that. I'm tired of being surrounded by dudes and being asked about ant histories and all they're always <laughs> the best five players you played against or what other generic question you want to you want to uh, let's let's join forces and 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 try to solve this problem I, i'm i'm happy to do that uh i you know not particularly you know sausage is not my my food of choice uh, it turns out, and, uh, but yes, uh, let's do that. I, I also do think um, somehow the problem of, I mean, I want to figure out how to solve this problem of where is this money actually going to come from? Because, but that's that's a bit bigger problem. Uh, a problem, the money of, you know, everyone loses. Like, uh, like that's the thing about poker is it's zero sum game in terms of money. Um, but maybe there's a way around. But it's not but a anyway, zero sum. But it's but it's not a zero sum game if the game grows. If it continuously grows, yes. Exactly, but and we have a lot of growth left. A lot of growth left, which is why the I best agree. way to do this is to keep keep growing the game. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'll revisit the subject. And uh, yeah, Octopi Poker, I'm making some waves. It's good to hear. And uh, so are, it sounds like you are too, Victoria. Are you making some high stakes uh, tournament waves as well? Congratulations. Well, I hope so. I'm just, I'm, I'm obviously getting, just getting started. But uh, yeah, we, we shall see what the future holds.